So Romans chapter 9, and uh, let's begin at at verse 19. Let me find it first of all. Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, uh, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of our Lord. Well, as you look at this passage, you see an awful lot of question marks. Uh, Really, uh, a lot rests with understanding a very tricky question that shows up at the beginning of the passage in verse 19. Uh, Why does God still find fault? You know, in the Greek, the question itself is very uh, simple. It's composed of just four words. It's direct to the point. But the question could literally be worded using far more words, something like this. What right does God have to blame me for anything? What right does God have to blame me for anything? And so, of course, we have to go backwards to find out what Paul uh, or why Paul expects someone to ask this question. But I don't want us to miss the fact that Paul is entering in verse 19 a hypothetical mode. You will say to me, he says at the very beginning of that verse. But he's entering this hypothetical mode for an important reason. He's doing so in order to give people permission to challenge something that sounds absurd. It's almost as if In the beginning of verse 19, Paul is saying uh, something uh, like this. He's saying, uh, I know that at least one of you is asking this question. Now, to be sure, it's probably not just one, is it? I mean, Paul is assuming that there's several people, and they're asking this question, this this question that has to do uh, really with the reliability of God or the character of God. Notice this, that when an objection arises, Paul, he, he senses that objection like a good pastor. But Paul doesn't believe that Christianity, uh, in the face of objections, is supposed to slink into the corner like a frightened mouse. Christianity doesn't hide from objections. 
Paul actually wants to tackle the objections, and so he assumes that the congregation is uh, listening uh, closely, and he is assuming that there are some unanswered questions that are floating around in in the congregation, and Paul doesn't slink from that. And Christianity doesn't slink from you. Your questions about Christianity do not scare God. God makes himself known over and over again. And that's actually where this sermon is going to take us, uh, to, to remind us that God makes himself known. And in the face of objections, Christianity actually comes closer. Well, Uh, There's really a good lesson here, isn't there, for how we ought to deal with those who would object to our faith, who object to Christianity. Sometimes uh, we actually uh, hope, as we're telling people about Jesus, to avoid all the thornier parts of our faith. They're hard to explain. Uh, The sovereign control of God, control even over our saying yes to the gospel, that's some thorny doctrine And we often become afraid of it when we think of sharing the gospel with others. In fact, maybe we hope that as we're sharing the gospel with others, they wouldn't actually notice that about the Christian faith. Or sometimes we're just afraid to share the gospel with others uh, just because something like this might come up. And if it comes up, I'm not going to be intellectually able to handle that objection. But let's not forget something in Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians 4, even Paul asks that that church, brothers and sisters in that church, even Paul, he asks them to pray that he would be able to declare the mystery of Christ with clarity. Paul, extremely intelligent, even he needed help from God to explain the mystery of Christ. But I just want us to notice what Paul is doing here. It's enough for us to notice in the beginning of this passage that Paul understands that his audience is pressing him to respond to a problem. And the problem is that God seems to be so powerfully in control that human control is thwarted. That's the problem. Paul, Paul is uh, articulating an objection by saying that, uh, that God seems to be so powerfully in control of hum- that human control is actually thwarted. We could put it this way. A central aspect of my humanness is the ability to make decisions, is it not? Well, that ability to make decisions seems to be destroyed by God's ability to make decisions. Now, that's the objection. And what Paul is going to say over the course of this passage is is that because the true glory of salvation belongs to God alone, Christian identity is always an identity of humility. See, see that's the, the, the question presents a problem that presents a glorious answer. The true glory of salvation belongs to God alone. And because that's the case, Christian identity is always an identity of humility. Well, there's actually a lot of questions here in uh, these 11 verses. And I want us to to bundle these questions uh, into uh, two. Uh, In verses 19 through 21, I believe there's a break between 21 and 22, but in verses 19 through 21, I want us to ask the question, can clay speak to God? Okay, that's, that's the first question. Can clay speak to God, verses 19 through 21? And then in in verse 22, the question seems to take a slightly different shape. So 22 through 29, I want us to ask this question. What exactly does clay get from God? What does clay 
get from God. Well, that's how the the passage is uh, broken up, a two-part sermon. The first part, verses 19 through 21, can clay speak to God? Three times uh, Paul is going to use the picture of clay in uh, his various uh, letters. And as he he does so, uh, Paul is uh, using the picture of clay to describe a person. Uh, He does it here. Uh, but he also does it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, that's the, the jars of clay uh, passage, description of a Christian. And he does it again in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, a, a rather strange passage uh, in which we are generically described by Paul as vessels uh, of clay in the church. This image of clay, it might sound like it's, it's very clear and, and easy to, to grapple with, but the image that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 9 of clay is actually a little bit unusual. At first, the image of clay is not as much about the maker or the one who forms, the potter. It, it's not as much about the maker or the potter as it is about the attitude of the clay that has been formed. As Paul uses this image, uh, the, the clay is not as much about the, the maker as it is about the attitude of the one who has been made. So from beginning to end, there is a heart issue at stake as Paul uses this illustration of clay. How the clay talks to God. How the clay regards God. That seems to be what Paul's after. And what this means is that Paul is piling up various Old Testament images of a potter in order to focus his point. Here's what I mean. He's using this imagery that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah chapter 18. This is by far in Scripture the most famous picture of uh, uh, clay. This is uh, Jeremiah uh, telling us uh, that God is a God who uh, forms a nation Israel as if a potter is forming something with uh, uh, his own hands. Uh, God is forming the nation of Israel, uh, building it up even as he tears down other nations. And so in Jeremiah chapter chapter 18, that's, that's a very significant image in the Old Testament. And everyone, uh, well, perhaps not everyone, most people in Paul's uh, audience would, uh, would know about this story. Uh, even those who are Gentiles, this is a notable story in the Old Testament. But then at the very end of this passage, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 12, there's this very fast response that's made to the potter. So Jeremiah 18, 12, uh, the response to the potter is this. The clay says to God, we will follow our own plans. That's a quote from Scripture. Jeremiah 18, 12. We will follow our own plans. So God is forming something out of clay, but the clay is actually speaking, but the, but the speaking clay has just a one-line part. It's, it's rather short. But what Paul uh, does is he uh, ventures from that Jeremiah picture of uh, a potter, and he goes to a lesser-known picture of a potter in the work of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 29... Many people in in Paul's audience might not know uh, this picture of a potter, but in Isaiah chapter 29, the clay uh, speaks much more to the potter. In Jeremiah 29 verse 16, uh, the clay says, God did not make me. And the clay also says, God has no understanding. 
See, in this illustration from Isaiah 29, there's actually more talking on the part of the clay. And then Paul goes from Jeremiah 18, Isaiah 29, to then Isaiah 45. Uh, in fact, a, a even uh, more obscure picture of uh, clay. And in Isaiah 45, verse 9, uh, the clay speaks to God and says to God, What are you making? And this is where uh, the clay says to God, Your work has no handles. And and this aspect of the clay speaking is very important to Paul because, because Paul is addressing a Christian audience in a way that reminds them of their own propensity to speak back to God, their own propensity, even as regenerated believers, to challenge God. There's something about this Christian life in which my hot-headedness, it remains, it's there. It's a propensity. And so now it's time for us to, as we think about this illustration having to do with relationship, uh, what the clay says to God, uh, we can go uh, backwards and, to, and find out what exactly this question then means. What right does God have to blame me for anything? Well, remember what's gotten us to this passage. Remember, Paul wants both ethnically Jewish and those of other ethnicities, the various Gentiles in the congregation, to understand something. And he says this in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he said this before in Romans 2 when he said that, that no one is a Jew simply by being circumcised. A Jew is an inward reality because circumcision is a matter of the heart. Not everyone who is born uh, of the long line of Abraham is a child of Abraham. And just because you can trace your own line of flesh, your family tree, back to Abraham, that doesn't mean that you are a child of God. This is what Paul has been saying to get us up to this point. And Paul gives three examples of this. Uh, Ishmael, he's the son of Abraham, isn't he? He's a son through an Egyptian woman. But uh, uh, Paul says that Ishmael wasn't a child of God. He speaks on the authority of the Old Testament. God cares for Ishmael, provides an Egyptian wife for Ishmael, makes Ishmael into a great nation. But Isaac was the one through whom God delivered his covenant promises. And Esau, he also, child of Abraham, uh, uh, the son of uh, full-fledged Hebrew parents, uh, even though Isaac and Rebekah didn't understand it, God made sure that they knew that Jacob, the younger, would actually be the one to carry forward God's promises, not Esau, the eldest. And so Paul, he, he wants the Roman Christians to understand that God was in control over choosing Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob, rather than Esau. God, he's not subject to family trees. God, uh, he's not subject to cultural expectations. He isn't subject to anything. He isn't subject to anyone. And then Paul, uh, quoting uh, Moses in verse 15, he says that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. And Isaac and Jacob cannot boast in themselves and Ishmael and Esau. They cannot persuade God or blame God. Human willpower or exertion will never motivate God. Now, we, we, we looked at this last week, but it, it, it bears repeating. Because after those two illustrations from those two families, the example of Isaac and Jacob, Paul turns to something that unfolds on the world stage. The king of that world, Pharaoh king of Egypt, 
he meets with the plan of God. You see, after the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel, God, he returns to the heart of Egypt to unscatter his own special people that they might serve him, that they might worship him at Mount Sinai. He goes into the world's power to get his people. And as Paul turns to that story from the pages of Exodus 9, he quotes Moses' nervous words to Pharaoh's face in Pharaoh's own throne room. For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name, not your name, might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what Moses says on the authority of God to the face of Pharaoh. Now Paul wants us to uh, clearly see that once again, just like Ishmael, just like Esau, God's in control and nobody will sway his plan. Not even the one who has the power to sway the plans of the entire world. The king of Egypt with the power of Egypt's gods. God has mercy on whomever he wills. He has compassion on whomever he will, which means that he hardens or causes stubbornness on whomever he will. Now, what does this mean for the relationship between the clay and the potter? If God is like this, then what kind of attitude should the clay have towards God? Remember the question, what right does God have to blame me for anything? Well, the true glory of choosing belongs to God alone. The true glory of choosing actually belongs to God alone. And if that's the case for the Christian, humility is absolutely critical, not just to their day-to-day Christian life, but critical to their very identity of who they are as a Christian. To be in Christ is to be someone who has submitted to the choosing power of God. The Christian has no right to boast at all. First and foremost, what right does God have to blame me for anything? Well, the answer has to do with God's authority to make you who you are as a Christian. Now, when we're talking about God's control, I want us to understand something that's actually very clear in Scripture. We can talk about the kind of freedom that the clay does have. There are some things that the clay can do. Now, as we are hyper-attuned to uh, Reformed Calvinism, uh, this may uh, start uh, to uh, cause uh, some of the whiskers to to just kind of uh, bend and flex just a little bit, uh, almost like, you know, faking like scratching a chalkboard with my fingernails, not actually doing it, though. The clay has some freedom. The clay has some freedom. They're things that the clay can do. Uh, First, the clay does get to speak to God. That's paramount for this passage. Uh, Paul would never deny that people, Christian people in particular, have uh, uh, have, uh, lose their opportunity to speak to God. Uh, They have the 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 the, uh, ability, the freedom to speak to God. And not only that, when we when we contemplate the Psalms, uh, Christians have the freedom to complain to God. There are freedoms that the Christian has. But we also might say this. Think chalkboard. The clay gets to make some kind of decision for or against God. Right? Right. 
I mean, Ishmael, he, he would become the ancestor of the Arab people and Esau uh, that of the Edomite people. But this doesn't mean, however, that Arabs or Edomites, by virtue of their family tree, are barred from ever becoming Christian people. And we can think of Caleb, a devoted follower of God, but uh, Scripture tells us that he's a Kenizzite of Edomite descent. And yet Caleb, he follows the Lord and is a champion for the Lord and an example to others. Or we can think of the many men uh, who were a part of King David's inner administration, who were uh, Gentiles from the surrounding area like uh, Obed the Ishmaelite. And we see David surrounded by folks who uh, are Gentiles but are working for David in the advancement of Israel. And we can see this from the very line of Jesus himself. The Bible is so clear about this. A Canaanite from Jericho, Rahab, is a part of the line of Christ. And then there's Ruth, a Moabite. You see, nobody is ethnically forbidden from conversion, just like nobody is ethnically guaranteed conversion. And the, the, by, by far, the, the, the hardest illustration is that of Pharaoh. But I could take us right back to that illustration of Pharaoh. And as Paul has quoted Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name uh, and not your name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's where Paul goes, Exodus nine sixteen. But you can do this. Look at Exodus chapter 9 and read verse 17. Paul could have just as easily carried that quote to the next line. And the next line says this, You, Pharaoh, are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. There's some kind of uh, decision-making that God allows us. As clay, by virtue of being a human, there is an offer of the gospel. There is the message of Jesus Christ, and you must deal with this message. Well, what are you not allowed to do then? Well, primarily, when Paul is talking about those things that we're not allowed to do, those freedoms that we don't have, Paul's very focused here. There is one thing in particular that he has in mind. Paul says that the Christian may not blame God for the presence of non-believers in the world. Christians may not blame God for the presence of non-believers in the world. Paul's audience, it's a Christian audience. But they can't assume that there is an injustice on God's part because not everyone who hears the gospel or is close to the gospel like the Jews actually becomes a follower of Jesus. That's not an injustice on God's part. There are people who reject the gospel. This is what Paul means in verse 21. There are those who are vessels that God makes for honorable purposes and there are those who are vessels that God makes for menial purposes. But we can never charge God as being unjust. In fact, there is an appropriate response. Rather than blaming God for the presence of non-believers in the world, what is the Christian called to do instead? If I can't do that, if I can't blame you for uh, injustices that I see all around me, that there are people who uh, reject Jesus all the way up to the point of death, 
And that there are people who uh, ought to know a lot about the gospel, uh, either uh, uh, ethnically or uh, historically, culturally, or because they they have uh, family members who are uh, believers all around them. Uh, It's not appropriate for me to blame God because there are non-believers. So what can I do? Rather than blaming God for the presence of non-believers, what are Christians called to do? They're called to not be ashamed of the gospel. They're called to realize that this is God's power to save and to speak that gospel and to display that gospel. We're not allowed to blame God for the presence of non-believers, but we are allowed to be proclaimers of the message of salvation that can be had only through the work of a sovereign God. Now, the non-Christian... Let's focus on them for a bit. They may never blame their lack of belief on God. In God's economy, according to his mystery, uh, uh, a non-believer is never able to blame God on their own lack of belief. And Pharaoh, again, is a wonderful example of this. God himself says to Pharaoh, you are exalting yourself against my people. You know, we looked uh, at, uh, at, the, at a later part of Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2 as we uh, baptized Judah. But going to that same sermon, uh, there's something very interesting that happens in verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2. Peter says this, Peter says, Men of Israel, uh, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Period. There's no period there. I'm just being dramatic. Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In God's economy, this makes perfect sense. But not to us. There is such a thing as human choosing. And Pharaoh is indicted by God for his own sins. Pharaoh was not indicted by God because he is merely a puppet of God, a one whom God merely plays with. Pharaoh was indicted by God for his own sins. And Pharaoh, like all of us Christians and non-believers, all of us actually deserve the same thing from God. All of us deserve judgment. All of us deserve condemnation. That's what all of us actually deserve. And Pharaoh displays this because he's indicted by God for his own sins, exactly what all of us deserve. Now, that's where we need to turn next. The clay actually gets to speak to God, but what does the clay get from God? What does the clay receive from God? Verses 22 through 29. This is interesting because verse 19 actually begins with a hypothetical question. It begins uh, with uh, this uh, question about blaming God. It's, it's really hypothetical, but verse 22 uh, begins with a question, but it's really a statement of fact that's phrased like a question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? And then verse 23, what if God wanted to make known the riches of his glory? 
Well, this is, this is actually not hypothetical. It's a statement of fact that God uh, has done this and is doing this. And the question has to do with revelation, God revealing himself. Paul has already in this letter told us over and over again that God is in the business not of hiding, but of making himself known in creation, in human conscience, um, in the life of Israel on the world stage. And even outsiders actually get to, uh, get to see God making, him, making himself known in these ways. Uh, the example of Pharaoh is an example of God making himself known on the world stage through the man Moses and through the people uh, uh, that will one day become uh, Israel. It's very uh, interesting that uh, Paul keeps returning to this uh, subject of the revelation of God making himself known. The most resounding way that God makes himself known is by Jesus, the the word made flesh. And this passage is very much about Jesus. You you need only turn to the beginning of chapter 9. Because at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul says the highlight of Judaism, the capstone, the acme of the nation of Israel, is that from this nation and from this people comes the Christ who is God over all. Romans 9 verse 5. But there's another way that God makes himself known, and that's through giving a condemned people something, not that they deserve, but something that they don't deserve. This, again, is God revealing himself, revealing the riches of his glory. His own presence is made known. God takes a people who deserve nothing. God takes you and me, and he calls us something that we don't deserve. Rather than calling us condemned, he calls us his own. One who should not be loved is called what? Beloved. Giving those who deserve the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah a never-ending life in his very presence, they don't deserve that. But this is another way that God makes himself known. And this is what Paul is saying to the Roman Christians. He's saying uh, is that we we tend to find it uh, unfair that God would allow some to be condemned for all, all eternity. It seems so unfair to us that God would condemn some for all eternity. And that unfairness is actually heightened when some of those condemned are those who are members of Abraham's family genetically. Uh, It seems really unfair if some of those who are condemned are those who are so close to the life of the church, surrounded with Christians and their family. But notice what Paul is doing. Rather than thinking it unfair that God would allow some to be condemned, Paul wants us to entertain the notion that it might actually be unfair that God would lavish any human with love and mercy and save them from condemnation. That, to Paul, ought to be the apparent injustice. That's the hard thing to believe. Not that there would be some who refuse the gospel, but that there would be some who are lavished with exactly that which they do not deserve. Do you see what Paul is doing? Because the true glory of salvation belongs to God alone, Christian identity is always an identity of humility. 
The gospel is such a precious revelation uh, that the most important issue of life has to be, uh, or all the things that you think are the most important issues of life, they have to be uh, pushed aside. The most important issue of your life and my life is coming face to face with the promise of salvation through Christ, who's the God over all. Do you really believe that? That is the single biggest issue for life in this present age. And Paul, at the beginning of Romans 9, is distraught. He's filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And the words that are used in the beginning of chapter 9 are very striking, unusual words. It's odd that he would speak so passionately and emotionally like this. He wishes that he were accursed. Why? Because the Jewish people have been brought so close to the gospel, and yet they reject it. But Paul, he'd say the same thing to us. We have been brought so close to the gospel. How beautiful that is. God making himself known in creation, human conscience, the affairs of world history, the life and ministry of Jesus, and God making himself known by regenerating your heart and making you a part of the church. A body of people who together are saved by God's rich grace. A body of people who together ultimately owe their life not to their own decision making, but to the very power of God and the gospel of salvation. That's the message that Paul wants to leave us with. How amazing that we would be a people who can not only uh, speak to the potter, but be eternally cared for and protected by the potter. This is what Paul's saying to us, Christian, because the, the true glory of salvation belongs to God alone. Christian identity is always an identity of humility. We are a people saved by a mighty, powerful God by his will. That's what it means to be saved by grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your power and for your strength. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that that power and strength is used for our own good by your love and your mercy. We pray that you would forgive us for taking lightly the magnificent reality that we are a people who deserve condemnation but have instead eternal fellowship with you. Forgive us for taking that lightly. In Jesus' name, amen.